Diners and Travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig. And today we bring you, I think, version, chapter three of our Ireland trip, Food on the Edge. Um, we interviewed program people, uh, people who were on the program, presenters, uh, chefs, restaurateurs, front of the house people, psalms. Uh, it's, it's such a nice lineup of talent. Yep. So and and they're, and they're all from different countries too. Yes. So, now start, so, starting so, out with so Sasu. Start, well, I mean, we start off with Finland. The next the next step is a is a South African chef whose restaurant just happens to be in Adelaide, South Australia. Yeah, and the, then we have Julie. Yeah, who teach who teaches how how to set up a uh, sommelier program, and Didier who deals yeah. with front front of house. So we're covering the covering the globe, I guess. And, and, and Ju- Julie is French, and uh, Didier is, was born in was born in France, but he's spent his life traveling traveling the world, being a front of house person. And, well, he's also uh, like on the edge. He was born on the edge of Italy too. I mean, yeah, yeah, and and, and, and he's now he's now living in southern Spain. So, so we traveled the globe quite, with these quite, people. Quite, quite a gang. Exactly. For, for, for your consideration today. And, and first up, uh. He was like second in command at this thing. He said he was the first person, um, that JP called to organize the food on the edge. And he's a strong personality. And he's, he's Finnish. <laughs> not, not the beginning, the end. Well, at the Spoon of the Edge conference, I just met my new best friend, <laughs> uh, Sasu. I'm going to try your last name. Um, Lachman. Lachman. Okay. You were the first chef that JP called when he was putting this program together, which is really the start of every conversation we have, because you, you could talk about almost anything, and you do. <laughs> Can you just give our listeners a little bit background, a background of you? You are a chef. Tell us where you were born, a little bit about how you, you know, your career, and then we'll just talk about some of these wonderful experiences and your interests. For sure. Now, um I was born in 1975 in Helsinki, um, born into a family where mom and dad both worked for the local airline, oh. for Finnair. And, um, well, mom and dad separated when, they, when I was two years old, so I was, I was, yeah, yeah, so I was with mom and um, able to travel, of course, amazing, like an amazing base. Also, she put me into the English school in Helsinki, so I was taught by American nuns. So that's why you have no accent. Yeah, I know, I know. It, it, people say that. So um, I've had an amazing background through mom, you know, through her choices. English school, traveling a lot, you know, to see the world and kind of understand that there's different cultures and different tastes and different this and different that. Now, um, we had a deal with mom. So I'll go through basic training in school. And then I'll do high school. And when I graduate from high school, then I can do what I want. Okay. And when I was three years old, I knew I'm going to become a chef or a concert pianist. That was like my big thing in life was to become one of each. One, one Why? Of the, I mean, that's a big difference between being a chef and a concert. Although I did know somebody who had a choice between an ENT 
um, mm-hmm. a medical doctor and a concert pianist that he chose doctoring. <laughs> yeah, yeah. See, I don't know. I, I can't explain where it came from. But the only thing I can say, I remember vividly, and mom has been reminding me of this, that you wanted to become either a concert pianist, because I was playing the piano at three years old. I, I didn't have a teacher, because teachers said you have to be five to be able to get taught, so I was just playing it by myself. And my, my dad used to be a musician, so I, I reckon some of that comes from there, yes. Now, I don't know where the cooking part comes from, because my mom didn't know how to cook at all. She said, when I was born, she didn't know how to boil water, <laughs> right? And then she just kind of maybe taught herself how to do simple dishes, so we got through and, you know... Once a month we went to a restaurant and there was like a special occasion when, you know, we could do that and, and whatever. But also when we were traveling, we always went to local restaurants and I could, you know, so you eat in China and then you eat in New York and you eat in, let's say, Rome or whatever. It's, it's you know, so you start getting a taste memory and understanding like I associate Italy with these flavors and Japan with those flavors and it's been amazing, right? So... Um, I did go to cooking school after high school, which is not the normal route. The normal route is you go through basic school when you're 15, and then you just don't go to high school at all. You go directly to learn the trade of being, becoming a chef. But, uh, but I went uh, later. So I was 18 when I went into cooking school. That's, uh, that's quite uh, old, because <laughs> the other uh, is usually 15 or 16, right? Yeah. Now, um, next up... Um, Yeah, I finished cooking school, and um, with all the possible chances in Helsinki, I mean, based in Helsinki, Finland, we had good restaurants, but you had to get into them by uh, work practice. So during school, you had three, I think we had three kitchen work practices, um, which I used to the advantage. And, um, And when I got employed by one of these, one of the better restaurants, I was there for a year, and then the head chef came to me saying, I have a friend in Canada. You should go and work with him for a year. And I said, okay, yes, chef. And then I went. And it was an 18-seat restaurant on Salt Spring Island, just out of Vancouver. You know? And when I landed, I saw the fir trees from Vancouver. We were just landing in the way where you could see all the islands. And I said, but I'm back home. (laughs) It looks ex- it looks exactly like like Finland, you know, and um, yeah, and I was there for eleven months, cooking for this guy and, and working there, and I think it was much more of life learning experience to like really be away from Finland and see Finland differently and all that than like cooking experience, whatever. It's a small restaurant; we were only two people working there. That's it. <laughs> And I mean, yes, yes, the clientele were very demanding. There was like big guns from Microsoft. They parked their boat in front of the island and just came for dinner one night, you know. And I mean, when they start buying Chateau Petrus, you, you know something's going about. And then you're grilling salmon for them and whatever. So it was a great experience, right? Uh, and that was the year of 9-11. Ooh. So, yeah, anyway. And I came back and, um, and after I just went from restaurant to restaurant, from catering to catering. I've, I've always been very sort of, um, how should I say, I've always been um, curious. So if I enter a trade, let's say music, 
So I played piano for 12 years, then I went on to guitar for 10 years, and I played the drums for 10 years. That's quite intensive as well. I want to I wanna see different parts of the story, and I've been singing, and someone said, you have to become an opera singer. I said, no, 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 I promise I'll, I'll become a chef, because my voice isn't, you know, it's not the lowest possible, but it's not the highest possible either. And when I start singing, it might be quite uh, broad, the voice. So I had like a singer who came up to me saying, you have to become an opera singer. And I'm like, but it's too late, isn't it? And she goes, oh, it's never too late. <laughs> I'm like, okay, whatever. So, um, yeah, from restaurant to restaurant, from catering company to catering company. Um, and I just found my own sort of little special place in a small restaurant thing. Because I did. Uh, I, was, I was in a... I did put myself into a, a, a bit of a corner. I pushed myself into a corner with a 200-seat restaurant standing in front of 200 guests, and w we need to, like, make 180 plates in 10 minutes, you know? And you push yourself, but then I realized the big-scale stuff isn't my thing. I want to keep it more personal. And uh, luckily enough, I, I, I was found by a guy who had a 24-seat restaurant, and he said, I want you for head chef. And that was my first, I mean, I used to be sous chef in a big restaurant before that, but he said, you're much more talented than this, come to my place. And, and so it kind of hooked up. I worked, him, worked for him in a small kitchen for like five years, and I got completely mind blown by the fact that I can make my own choices, so I can stand in front of the client and say, yes, I decided to have this fillet on the menu, and how do you like it? And after this, it was, it's all been smooth sailing for like the last 10 years until we're here. So but you now have your own restaurant, and uh, it's in Helsinki, and it's called? It's called Ora, O-R-A. Meaning? The meaning in Finnish is a spike of a plant, hmm. like a cactus or, yeah. or whatever, you know. And we have, um, I'm sure you guys know rowanberries. Rowan? Rowan the tree? Rowanberry? No. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, it's, it's, very, it's very common to find in my country, in Finland. And the rowanberry grows to these bunches, and it's, it's usually always used after the first frost. And you make jam out of it, and you usually make juice or whatever. It's a bit tart, but it's really, really good to have with gamey meat. So, and game is like the later season in, in, in our yearly cycle anyway. So there's a version of rowanberry that's a bush, and it has spikes. So it's called the spiky rowanberry bush, which in my language is ora pihlaja. So pihlaja is rowan, and then ora pihlaja means spiky rowanberry. So. Um, do you feel remote? I'm going to actually come visit you, but I, I've not been, but you said I have to come. But do you feel remote there? Because you were always traveling to all these conferences and whatnot. You can hold that. Well, um, I actually don't. I mean, seeing guys like Jorge coming from Mexico, you know, he says he just traveled 22 hours to be here. And then I meet the Australians, and I go, was it like 30 hours? They go, yeah, 32. And I'm like, oh, my God. So for me, it was a three-hour flight and two and a half hours in the car, and I'm here. So I don't feel that remote in comparison to Australia or Mexico, of course. But, uh, but sometimes it's just the, the um, what is it? Longitude is this way, and latitude is latitudes. Yeah, so it's the latitude. 
because we're so much higher than, let's say, Denmark. So the seasons are very different. So we're more like you would you would maybe compare Alaska with Finland. Um, now you cook seasonal and local. I'm assuming. Um, and uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure what that means, but I have sort of a general idea from um, a Scandinavian cooking in general, yes. right? Um, but you also you got connected with this international rogue chef group called Cook It Raw, so you've had some rather wild experiences with that. Oh, that's very true, and they aren't the only ones who have connected with me. So. Um, <laughs> We've, I've been able to do a lot of funny stuff, which is really great. I mean, but but yeah, we um, we do at my restaurant at Aura in Helsinki. We serve a six-course menu that's only based on local and seasonal stuff. But you have to remember, in Finland, if you think of the seasons, we have two. We have the season when stuff grows and the season when nothing grows. <laughs> Eight months of every year. Absolutely nothing grows in the whole region, except for patients waiting for spring. That's the only growth you can get. Like, expectations for spring to come, right? And then when spring comes, within four months, you have every single wild herb, every single wild berry, wild mushroom, you know, all of the tree shoots that you can pick, and everything. Everything in four months, plus all the farm stuff. It all happens in four months. And then you're done. And then it's see you next year. So it's a bit of a challenge. You need to be able to preserve. You need to be able to use them at their heap on the menu, the ingredients, right? The heap moment goes on the menu. But you also, at the same time as you forage or pick something from the garden to use on the menu, you need to be preserving it then at the same time. You wouldn't want to preserve it. You don't, you don't want to preserve an ingredient when it's past. You want to preserve it at its best, right? So, unless you go unripe, then that's a different version, because we do some of that too. But we ferment, we salt, we dry, we make our own vinegars, we freeze some things that, that are okay to freeze, we do. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on. So, it's a bit, of, it's a bit crazy. <laughs> well, um, this conference, uh, you worked hard on that. Um, it's called Food on the Edge. Um, what edge are we on and what happens next? I mean, we've, we've talked about sustainability, we've talked about no waste, we've talked about all, all kinds of things, but beyond that, what's coming up? I think um, the, the edge that we're on is, is responsibility. I mean, for, for being really serious, what I'm hoping for is that... that um, I'm trying to avoid the word bullshit, but let's just let's just let's put it in. So instead of just going somewhere and speaking utter bullshit, you would actually be completely honest. Imagine a chef in a future um, convention or symposium or whatever coming on stage and saying, "I was originally coming to tell you that we're really great and we do our best and whatever." But I'm just going to stand here butt naked and honest and say we're not doing enough. We need to be more responsible. You know what I mean? Like I'm hoping to see um, this in the future, that someone would be dead honest. It's a bit like Norbert was saying. Like, yeah, so how many of you guys would have a sustainable kitchen? And a lot of hands go up. 
And he says, well, how many of the kitchens is 100% sustainable? And no one can lift the hand. You can't. You can't. So, I mean, there's, there's that thin, fine line of like being super honest and saying we're not perfect. We're trying, but we're not perfect. And then trying to be a little bit idealistic. You know? So, responsibility is something that I really want to see. But we're going in the right direction, are we? Yes. Okay. Yes. That's good. Um, so, you will now go back to um, Helsinki. And uh, how long will you be there before you travel again? <laughs> I'm, um, I'm actually in a phase right now where this trip is my last one before uh, winter. So, I actually get to go in back to work without having to just, you know, teleport <laughs> within the next three days. So, um, I think my next work trip should be at the end of January or in February. Uh, it's, no, it hasn't been decided yet, so I, I'm kind of in between. There's been, uh, I hate to say offers, but there's been some offers to travel to the States to cook. Um, I should have gone already uh, right after this, but I can't go. So I chose differently, let's put it this way. Like, which restaurants can you say that, that you would be interested in, in visiting and guest shopping in the States? In the States? Oh, my God, there's so many. There's so many. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm lucky enough to also have friends in the States, you know, so I could maybe... Maybe, maybe hook up with uh, what I call my brother from another mother, is uh, Gunnar Gislason, who, who is uh, the head chef of the One Star Agern in New York. So, I, I mean, any chance to cook with this guy or spend time with him is just, it's time well spent. So, I mean, <laughs> so, but, but apart from Gunnar, I mean, it would be fascinating to go... Um, I'm not saying I need to cook at Manresa, but to see David Kinch's operation. I mean, I've, I've only gotten to know David through Food on the Edge. And like the first and second, we were here. And, and I mean, we made friends during the first one. And then the second one, we, when we met each other, it was like that year didn't even happen in between. We just clicked again into this mode like as if we would have just departed the day before. It was amazing. We've become really good friends, and, and, and I really admire what he's doing, like how focused he is, and, you know, after the restaurant burnt down, and it's, it's you know, redone, and he got his third star when he was here. On Food on the Edge, the first Food on the Edge, he, he completely collapsed at the after party because he caught the call from Michelin saying, we just, we're just giving you, in 15 minutes, just for your knowledge, you're going to be a three-star restaurant. And he was crying in the toilet. To his team, he was on the phone. I'm, I was just using the toilet, and and I hear him just crying, and he's going, "Are you guys at the beach?" And I mean, I hope you have enough champagne. Like I could, I would do anything to be there now with you guys. Imagine that, you know. So there's a, a lot of uh, memories, but yeah, I would really, I would love to see what he's doing over there. But uh, if there's one place that I would want to go to cook and see the reactions of people, how they react to Nordic food, I think it would be San Francisco in general. Just in general, out of like everything possible. Because let's say if I fly to Alaska and cook over there, it's maybe not that different, you know? Um, but San Francisco would be really amazing. 
Well, I mean, I, I can tell that you and I just hit it off right away, too. And <laughs> I look forward to running into you again at the next conference. And, uh, yeah, and um, I agree with you about David Kenshin and Menresa. I just, I love the guy and I love the place. And also that the West Coast is very different in style from the East Coast. Um, anyhow, I'm, I know you're busy here, so we're going to say goodbye temporarily, but I hope that we're going to talk again sometime soon. Yeah. Okay. Love you, dear. Thank you. Thank you so much. Cheers. We're going to take a short break, but don't go away because we'll be right back. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. Next up, we've got Duncan Welgemode. Did I do that right? Something like that. Yes. Who is the interesting, and he's from South Africa, and, and yet he's doing African food, not, uh, not white South Africa, but African food in Adelaide, which is a college town in South Australia. And if you listen to his um, interview, I mean, what comes out is that he's doing a great deal um, to preserve the culture and aid in retaining the uh, the essence of Aboriginal culture. And he, he does remarkable things. We liked him a lot. Well, you get to meet everybody at this Food on the Edge conference. Uh, we, we have a chef, actually, from one of our favorite Australian towns, South Australia, Adelaide. Um, and uh, welcome to Duncan Valkenmute. <laughs> you didn't think I could do that, did you? <laughs> um, Duncan um, is kind of complicated. He was born and raised in South Africa. Uh, he has a, a restaurant in Adelaide called Africola. Um, and it's a complex, it's African, but it's, you move around the continent, don't you? And um, tell us, will you tell us what your food's like? Um, our food is a pretty inauthentic African food, is, is probably the, the best way of putting it. Inauthentic, correct. Um, and the reason um, I use inauthenticity as a, as a sort of adjective for our food is because... Um, if you try to do something authentic, especially with something like African food, you're going to have an entire continent um, saying that their grandmother did it better than you anyway. So so it's just easier. Uh, it's my kind of um, take on on African food. And, you know, the premise of our restaurant is uh, we started out cooking South African food. Um, and two years later, we changed the entire restaurant um, and now we cook uh, food from the Maghreb or North Africa, um, and you know, in yeah, probably another sort of year, we'll change, do it all again, and and maybe look at other East or West Africa. No, I mean, uh, we interviewed somebody who um, has a restaurant that they think is everyone thinks is African in London. That's not actually. 
um, but they use African ingredients very loosely. Do you use African ingredients or do you use local Australian ingredients? Um, the ingredients we use um, all come uh, outside of Adelaide, or well, in Adelaide or just outside. Um, I'm militantly seasonal and very, very parochial in, in the sourcing. So we only use exclusive South Australian ingredients. Well, you've got a pretty good larder, though, in South Australia, anyhow. Um, and, and you have probably a pretty good uh, customer base. It's a university town. It's charming. Um, who are your typical customers? Um, our demographic is actually very, very mixed. But um, when we're doing our sort of internet algorithms and, and looking through our bookings, um, our main de demographic are um, female between the ages of 18 and 38. Um, yeah, that's our, that, that makes up 74% of our restaurant demographic, which is quite unheard of, really. Um, but the rest of our demographic, I mean, it's, it's all foodies, um, uh, people that you know, do the pilgrimage from all over the world to come and eat in our restaurant, and locals. We're very, very community-based. Um, but we're lucky enough to also court, you know, um, chefs from all over the world, um, celebrities, uh, rock stars. We're pretty much in the center of it all. So yours is a big-time destination restaurant, right? Can you um, tell us a little bit how old the restaurant is and also what can you just run us through some dishes so we get an idea of what you might be serving um the restaurant is um just over four years old um and you know it keeps going from strength to strength uh the kind of food that we serve i mean what's on the menu at the moment um yeah i mean our menu does change um once a week-ish, but we do have our staples on. Um, uh, peri peri chicken is is. Um, I'd like to. Uh, I don't. Uh, you know, there's no such thing really for me as signature dishes or whatever. It's probably our most one of our most popular dishes, um, and it's one that obviously means the most to me, being from Johannesburg in South Africa and uh, the influence of the sort of Mozambique slash Portuguese. Um, yeah, peri peri. So it's, it's you know it's it's probably the national dish. Oh, well, I say it's a, it's the main dish of Johannesburg. So obviously I do it, but completely differently in you know in my own take of it. Um, we do um, probably the most spoken about dish is our tea sandwiches. We do a, a chicken skin tea sandwich um, with all the drippings um, from the peri peri chicken um, uh, served on the side for dipping. So, and that's a, it's a pretty crazy dish that might also cause diabetes if you eat too much of it. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, that's, that's what you can expect. But it is actually mainly vegetable heavy. Um, and, you know, for us, it's, it's about treating the vegetables. So, you know, we can convince, uh, you know, a 50-year-old Barossa winemaker who only drinks Shiraz to sit down and instead of ordering a giant steak, actually will order you know, a plate of our vegetables, you know, is that satisfying? Well, now you're um, tied into all these international festivals. I mean, why were you brought to a conference about promoting food in Ireland? I mean, what, uh, is it a matter of friendships with other chefs or 
Um, or is there an issue that you're associated with that you're supposed to present here? Um, I'm associated with quite a few issues, but um, in, for this event in particular, um, I cooked with uh, JP and um, another chef, Norbert Niederkoppler, from Restaurant St. Hubertus. Um, I hosted them in Kangaroo Island in South Australia. I had them for a week um, where we literally just cooked barefoot um, in the sand using uh, exclusively, you know, uh, ingredients from the island itself over, uh, you know, three lunches. Um, but also, you know, um, slightly outspoken with a few issues and, you know, the issue that I brought to Food on the Edge was a general issue, pretty much throwing celebrity chefdom under the bus. Well, you said many issues. Can you tell us a few of the issues that you're identified with? Um, some of the issues that I'm identified with is um, sort of food supply in um, Aboriginal communities, um, uh, which is a pretty big one that we, we worked on and we still still work on um, in East Arnhem Land. Um, yeah, basically just, you know, trying to get food there, affordable, fresh. Um, and, yeah, and basically speaking about and promoting um, Aboriginal food culture, but, uh, but in particular the, the Yongu food culture. So you, you try to supri- supply fresh food to a food desert? Well, that's the irony of it, is that it's actually, um, there is plenty of food there, um, but uh, unfortunately a lot of the communities um, have have been westernized, but not, you know, to an extent where they eat convenience food, so they've lost a little bit of the land themselves, but it's all still there. I mean, it's it's the most beautifully rich and diverse landscape for wild food. So, um, you know, one of the projects we're hoping to to get to light um, in the next sort of six to eight months is us um, starting a nutrition program, teaching um, the indigenous to actually um, cook, shop, um, properly how to batch cook, um, instead of, um, you know, buying convenience food at a very high price, also teaching them, well, not, not teaching them, unlearning what uh, Western culture has kind of thrust upon them because, you know, their, their knowledge of wild food and the way they eat is very sophisticated. I think us Westerners are, are the, this, you know, yeah, need to learn a thing or two about it, but what we're trying to do is just bring a bit, a bit of our knowledge um, and kind of bridge the gap. It's a very perverse social-political issue, isn't it, that, that Australia has never solved. And, and apologies from the Prime Minister to the Aboriginal population for what was done a thousand years ago. So, so, somehow falls short of the mark, don't you think? Well, it does. I mean, you know, apologies um, are... You know, I mean, it's a nice gesture, but um, what the indigenous communities um, go through today, and you know, even just how the 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 white Australian population, you know, think of Aboriginals and Aboriginal culture, you know, it might as well be in a different universe. They've got no connection with it, which is which is quite disgusting. I mean, I've got two, you know, two kids at school, and um, 
the other language to learn at school for them, the option is Greek or Italian. You know, there is no indigenous language. They, you know, there's no, there's, they could be learning Ghana languages. Ghana's, the Ghana people are the, the people of South Australia, but it's not offered, um, and it's not offered in the curriculum. And that's, a, you know, as a, as a white South African, recognizing these issues in Australia and, you know, I think it's, and for me to be shocked about the underlying racism that is shown by the government and also just general people. I mean, one of the biggest reasons I got involved in working with um, the indigenous um, peoples of Australia is because living and working in, in this, you know, these capital cities of Australia, you very rarely see any Aboriginal people. Yeah, they, they, I mean, there is, there, there is no one. And if you do, um, they are inebriated slash homeless, and it's what the communities call long grass. Um, those are the sort of um, excommunicated members of, of, of um, you know, their, their sort of communities. And um, so the perception you have is that, and that's the only thing. And I thought, no, th that, is, that is incorrect. Like, me coming as a minority, you know, 4% um, minority, white person in a in obviously in southern africa um you know it's part of your life you you are the minority you know um african you know southern african people you know zulus the Norsas, they you know they they're the majority and to think that white australians have no connection with 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 the land with the people even though they're the ones that came um and settled you know and claimed that that country it's, uh, yeah, it's preposterous. Now, now, you, now you, you can't be in the food and drink business in South Australia without embracing the fact that it, it, it truly is one of the world's best wine-producing regions. How do, you, how do you interact between the Barossa Valley and the Adelaide Hills and all the other great sources of wonderful grapes and beautiful wines with food that certainly in its native form is not served with wine well I mean um, at uh, Africala in regards to um, the ingredients we use obviously the the European well I say European based they, you know it's it's western western ingredients really when you think of it we only use a very small amount of indigenous ingredients only because um, those ingredients by and large, don't really resonate with the cuisine that we're producing. Not to say that um, I'm not a giant fan of indigenous ingredients. Um, it's just that you know, um, yeah, it just it just doesn't work with, with the palate structure that we try to promote. Um, in regards to how we um, interact with the, the wine regions, I mean, we're you know, I'm, I'm very heavily vested in in the wine culture of South Australia. Um, especially the natural wine culture in South Australia. Um, we're also fortunate enough to make our own wine um, alongside um, um, some incredible winemakers. And, you know, uh, some of the most highly regarded winemakers in, in the state are, are very good friends and drinking buddies. So I'd say we're on the front line, really, of a, um, a young, diverse sort of wine scene. You know, Africola is kind of the community. It's kind of the the city base for for a lot of them. So yeah.
Well, I, I see why. I mean, you do you bring a perspective that uh, a lot of other chefs are not going to bring to these conferences. So I can see why you're in high demand for these, Duncan. And um, I, I start getting nostalgic and homesick for Australia when you talk about it. <laughs> but the problems haven't gone away. You know. Anyhow, this was great meeting you. And uh, um, you're off to another conference, <laughs> flying off to Milan. And uh, I wish you much success there. And um, maybe we will meet up at one of these again since you're omnipresent at these. <laughs> Thank you for talking to us. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Our next guests, as we mentioned at the beginning of the program, are, are, are in the food business and the drink business, but in uh, unusual ways, in a sense, in that they're, in that they're not chefs, they're not producers, they, they don't, they don't make any wine in one case, uh, but, uh, they're both interesting and remarkable young people, and curious enough, but both of them are French, which is not exactly what you would expect to find in, in Galway, but these young people are real experts in their field. First, first of all, Julie Dupuis, who's a sommelier and, and a wine expert, and then Didier Fer- Ferrolati, who is a, I mean, it sounds Italian, but he's from that part of France that's very close to the Italian border. And he's the, he's the king of front of house, and we'll give you an example of why as we close out the program. First of all, Julie, and then Didier. Didier. My next guest, that her last name is a very common name in France, and it's D-U-P-O-U-Y, and I'm going to let Julie pronounce it. Julie Dupuy. And Julie Dupuy's story is an interesting one, because we're at Food on the Edge in Galway Island, and everybody on the program is talking about food. Nobody very much is talking about wine, which is a very important accompaniment, wouldn't you say? It is indeed very important. Um, but however, because no. okay, however because this is food on the edge, I decided to link my profession and passion as a sommelier to the topic of food in some ways. And and what we can talk about a few more things, but the one you just mentioned to me, which is where does cork taint come from and why? Is, is something that's bewildered wine drinkers and sommeliers over the years, and you think you might be onto something. Well, for many years, people thought that cork was the only responsible for the cork taint, but apparently, uh, there are some recent studies that has uh, that have proven that. Yes, cork could be part of it because uh, there is a mold that could be present in the bark of the tree which is used to make uh, cork. But these molds, to um, to taste or smell of cork taint, need to be in contact with certain chemicals. And there is a reaction that creates what we know as corked taint or corked wine. And my big question is over uh, the last 10 years, let's say, 
I've noticed while shopping for fruit and vegetables that this very same style of pork taint was present not only walking around the shops but also, you know, smelling fruit and vegetables and tasting them. So I questioned this. And during a trip to Portugal in June, I got my answers, uh, I suppose my questions answered because I was explained about this reaction between the mold and the chemicals that is needed to create these cork taints. So my question is, where are those aromas and flavors coming when it is on the food? Are they pesticides? Are they chemicals? Is it contamination through transport? Is it actually contamination through um, culture? Where does it come from? And the importance of you know, keeping on paying attention to what we smell to filter what we eat. Now, did, did you you said you found the did you find the answer or you didn't find the answer? Well, no, I think the an, the answer I did find. I'm not a chemist, so I am not in an, I'm not able to you know to properly explain it to to you right now. But it is it is clear that it is the the the, the encounter of two things: mold and other chemicals, which um, which creates what we know as cork taints. Now we interviewed the author of a book that was written all about the subject of closures of wine of, of wine, and and how the, the I, I forget the name now of the, of the popularized, popularized mostly by Australia and New Zealand to begin with the, the, the uh, manufactured stopper rather than cork and he, he told us that the reason that in that part of the world they became so against using cork was because they, they felt they got the worst cork because all, all the good corks went to Spain and Italy and France and the, only the lousy leftover cork went to Australia and New Zealand so they decided Stevelin I guess is the, is the name of the closure so, so they, they, they out there they have changed close to 100% of using these artificial closures where do you come down on that issue? Well, I think originally a few years ago, about one bottle in 12 used to be corked. I think nowadays it's about down to one in 24 or something like this. But however, it's totally possible to have a wine under screw cap being corked because sometimes contamination doesn't come necessarily from the link with the cork. So it really shows that the cork is not the only, you know, guilty the guilty one there. And um, I mean... So, I, I mean, it's, it's great to not have to face corked wines as often as we used anymore. But if really the contamination comes from chemicals, those chemicals just end up not being in contact with the molds. And as a consequence, I would imagine the wine doesn't smell of cork wines or cork taints. But it doesn't mean that the chemicals are, are not there still. So, so it doesn't, doesn't mean it's good. Just because it doesn't smell bad doesn't mean it's good. <laughs> it just doesn't mean that there is nothing that warns us that we shouldn't be drinking it if it isn't good. Now, a another part of the story we got, just to close out on the whole cork thing, was that I, I understand that at a, a certain point the, the government released the, the harvesting of cork and, and didn't control it very well. So, so as a result, the cork product wasn't very good. Yeah, so in fact, the, the, the center of production for cork is in fact Portugal and some parts uh, of Spain. But there are, there are also cork produced in, um, in North Africa, 
and in the other parts of the world. But the best quality is apparently within Portugal, in the uh, Alentejo regions, and uh, at the border with Spain as well. For what I understood, it's down to a certain climate. Um, you need certain climatic conditions in terms of moisture and, uh, and sunlight to make sure that the mold which is present in certain parts of, of the world on those on those um, type of oak trees is actually not present as much. But when you see them removing the bark from the trees, they actually do not keep the part which is very near the, the grounds because I would imagine that is the part which might be um, most commonly contaminated by the mold. Now, now I'm going to change subjects altogether and pick your brain about something that wasn't part of your presentation yesterday. But, but your input on the... The, the, the possible solution to the, to the desire to have wines which taste wonderful but which don't require quite so much of your bank balance are, are the parts of the world where the wines are less well known and as a result there are bargains to be found on the store shelf well, I suppose it depends where you are in the world. I suppose if you actually, if you're in a country and you consume the wine of, you know, of that country, you probably end up having better value for money. Once it starts being exported uh, with different taxes, especially here in Ireland where we have really high, um, you know, very high duty, the highest in Europe, then you end up being much more money than you would if you were buying, you know, French wines in France or Spanish wines in Spain. Uh, I think at the moment. Um, there are some really, really great stuff happening all around the world, um, like, you know, in Spain, in Italy, in France, you have a more and more um, interesting small growers trying to really do their best and respecting the environment as well, which I think is very important, and re really going back to speaking about terroir wines. And um, maybe the thing is to stay away from the main regions or the main names and the main, you know, AOC or DOC, and to look at maybe some Vendopy, which which can be of wonderful quality, but just can't be labeled as anything else because they don't belong to a certain area. So that could be one of the options to look at when you're traveling. Now, what about what about New World? What about Australia, New Zealand, the, the United States? We better not leave them out, I guess. <laughs> well, the United States, funny enough, we don't have so many wines from the United States in Ireland, which is a pity uh, because I've tasted recently some amazing wines uh, from Oregon and from... Um, and from California, but um, New Zealand, I think the quality of wines in New Zealand is superb, and I think over 90% of what they produce is now sustainable, uh, certified sustainable. Funny enough, a lot of the wines don't sound like they are expensive, but I think the average price per bottle uh, globally around the world is actually the highest, from, is actually from New Zealand, but people are willing to spend that little bit more on New Zealand wines because of the quality of them and the style of them. And of course, wines from, uh, wines from Australia, now, what arrives on the market here in Ireland from Australia, we have some superb wines, but they're definitely not uh, the cheapest on the market. A lot of wines from Australia can be very cheap, but if you really want something stunning in terms of quality, you'd have to spend what you would spend in a good bottle of Burgundy or Bordeaux. Uh, I guess that's, that, that's, that's, because, that's because they're good, right? So if they're, so if they're, so if they're, good, you, if they're good, you're willing to pay the price. Now, we, we, we've been to Australia and a number of times we used to live there. Some of the more interesting wines seem to be coming from Western Australia and also from Tasmania. Yes. So Tasmania, absolutely, very cool climate, some wonderful sparkling wines and uh, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Um, in Western Australia, I suppose uh, Margaret River is uh, the very famous region. I think some wines from uh, Victoria are 
absolutely beautiful as well if you're in, in Geelong or Gippsland or if you are in Yarra Valley you've got some wonderful wines it's funny I, I lived in Geelong in the, in the early 1970s and I don't think they were growing any grapes at all <laughs> so, 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 so where they all came from I'm not sure but they, they, they're, certainly, they're certainly really wonderful and uh, it's been a true pleasure to talk to you Julie we wish you success you're now consulting rather than working as a sommelier all the time I think Yes, so I'm partially working as a sommelier, but consulting for a Michelin star restaurant called Chapter One, and I have also also some other wines activities on the side. Oh, you're a cha- you work for Chapter One. We know Ross Lewis really well. We we had a wonderful dinner there a few years ago and interviewed him. And interestingly enough, he told us last night that that he listens to his interview all the time. <laughs> must must make him feel good. Julie, I hope you I hope you'll do the same. And in the meantime. Listeners, Julie Dubuis is, is, is a name to reckon with if you're interested in wine. I'm sure she's going to emerge doing something interesting in the future. In the meantime, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. ...whose last name I can't pronounce. So when, when he speaks for first, he, I'm going to have him say that. And his company, which is relatively new, is called... Fuego Amigo, but but Didier is an expert on being a front of house person, an unusual but very vital part of the restaurant business. And when we arrived in in where are we now? In Galway. In Galway. You were one of the first people we met, and you said, I remember you from the Fat Duck. And we had eaten lunch at the Fat Duck only about 14 years earlier. So, so one of the key skills that belongs in a successful front-of-house person is, is a memory as long as an elephant. Is that how you describe one of the things that you really need to have? Well, it is uh, one of the, of the quality... Uh, a front of house needs to have uh, to be physiognomist and uh, recognize faces uh, because every kind uh, every customer wants to feel uh, special so uh, if you come back to my restaurant even three or four years ago and uh, when you enter I uh, give you my hand and I tell you how oh, mr. Peter all nice to see you again uh, you can be only impressed and feel uh, special so I think it's uh, one of the strong points you have to go, uh, as well as being a little bit of psychologue. And, and you proved that when we had lunch in Denia with Kike de Costa. You did exactly that. And it was, it was, we, we, we were very impressed. And you did it again just a couple of days ago. You know, for people who are... At Two things. For, for somebody contemplating following in your footsteps um, to where you are now in the hospitality, um, maybe you could recount how you got to where you are now. And then the second thing we'll talk about is all the kinds of things that your company can help people do. Let's start with your background. Born in Nice. Yes, born in Nice in the 1976. Um, I started in the uh, catering school. I was 14. I spent four years uh, over there. I got uh, three diplomas of it. Uh, 
um, service and uh, and wine. Uh, as much as we uh, we were uh, studying uh, uh, cooking, pastry, uh, reservation, and anything you could find uh, in uh, in the catering industry, then I moved on. Uh, to my first job in the Le Moulin de Mougin, uh, it was uh, Roger Verger, three stars at the time. Spent one year there. Then I had to go to the military service for one year that I did in Paris in the uh, uh, defense minister. Then I get back to uh, the south of France in Cannes in uh, uh, the Hotel uh, Carlton. At the top floor, they had a, a two-star called La Bellotero where I've been uh, uh, there for one year. Then uh, I kind of realized that if I wanted to, uh, to step up in, uh, in the hierarchy of, uh, of uh, the, the team of front of house, I had to speak English. So I had my first, um, my first uh, step in England. I've been the, the methody uh, of the Roussillon restaurant for a year and a half. It was one star was a, rest, um, a chef uh, I met in Monaco. He was uh, uh, working for Ducasse. Mm -hmm. So he called me over and I spent a year and a half there. Then I went back to the south of France for two years and a half in uh, La Bellotero. Uh, no, La Bellotero, uh, La Chèvre d'Or in S Village, just above Monaco. It was two stars as well. And then uh, from there uh, I went back to England and uh, I've been the restaurant manager of the Fat Duck for five years and uh, as I got uh, a little bit kind of tired about uh, the English weather I wanted some sun and uh, the sea to be close uh, and I met what who is my uh, my wife at the moment and uh, she's Spanish I told her look we can go to Spain wherever you want as soon as we've got the sun and the sea. So we, we ended up in, uh, in Denia because uh, she's from a little village 100 kilometers away from there. And uh, I've been uh, the restaurant manager of Kike da Costa for uh, over uh, 10 years, almost 11 years. And uh, since uh, last year, I opened my uh, uh, consulting company with uh, a friend of mine. It's called uh, Fuego Amigo. And uh, we are trying to help any kind of uh, catering business who want to step up a little bit on uh, a customer service. Uh, I'm doing a lot of uh, chat and uh, speech in uh, university and catering school because I think uh, all the youngsters needs, needs to know how beautiful is my job and uh, how is beautiful being a waiter and what you can get out of it. And uh, we've been uh, building as well a masterclass for methodies because in my time it was something that wouldn't exist and I don't think it does exist actually. We do uh, three, um, three days, intensive days uh, for methodies, uh, for uh, restaurant managers. Uh, I'm getting five of my friends, fellow uh, professionals that uh, inspires me and I know they are very good professional, and over three days we talk uh, for 40 students uh, about service, customer service, uh, psychology, about uh, the food and uh, uh, body language and all that kind of thing that you cannot really find anywhere. So, here you go. Well, that's a little bit uh, my background and what I'm doing at the moment.
It's interesting. There, there's a big thing to do with food in the United States called the James Beard Awards. And the award that the restaurant owners and chefs seem to be the proudest of is the one for service. Uh, uh, overall, what's the level of service in this restaurant? And it's the one, it's frequently it's the last one you get of all the ones, because Thomas Keller won one year, but, it, but not the first time he was nominated, because it, it, really, it really is a remarkable expression of the whole experience of which the maitre d' is a vital part. But did you ever come across Danny Meyer's book? He, 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 has a, he has a group called the Union Square Hospitality Group. He's been enormously successful in New York City. And in his book, he says, one of the things I do sometimes is I go to my restaurants and I sit in the corner and I watch. That's all I do. I don't do anything. I just watch and take notes uh, because I want the experience to be wonderful and the staff meeting the customer are the, are the ones who have the biggest impression. So in his book, he says, what's the most, he asks the question, what's the most important thing about a restaurant? And most everybody answers the question, the staff. He turns out, he says, the real answer is the customers. Because without the customers, there is no, re there is no restaurant. Do you have something you'd like to add to that? Well, uh, I think it's absolutely true uh, that uh, we are working and we are due to our customers because they are making the effort to, uh, to come and visit us and uh, the least we can do is uh, attend them and give them food the best way we can. Um, I think that uh, we could add the atmosphere because having a good service and having a good food doesn't uh, make you have uh, a good atmosphere and feeling comfortable. So when you've got a front of house that can attend you the way you expect and on top of that create an atmosphere uh, you feel like you are at home or you feel like you don't want to leave that place, I think it's when uh, the restaurant becomes magic. Uh, I don't want to be argumentative, but in Danny Meyer's book, um, he said the first responsibility of a restaurateur above all else, is to his staff. Oh, no, I, I wasn't suggesting that he didn't say his, his staff were very important, but I still think the important thing that he said was, was that the most important thing was really the customers. But we, we can argue that. We'll look it up in the book <laughs> when we get home, <laughs> unless I delete this from the conversation. You know, I, I had something else to say. Uh, the... the You've always worked for high-profile chefs. Do you think that's important if you're climbing the ladder to success in hospitality? I mean, Kiki DaCosta is like, I mean, he could probably work with no staff whatsoever. Well, no, uh, I, I don't think it's, uh, it's uh, a key thing to, uh, to climb in the industry. It's just that uh, from... Uh, from early age, uh, I knew that it was that kind of gastronomy I wanted to work for. Uh, I, I knew that I didn't want to do uh, breakfast because I don't like the mornings. <laughs> and I knew that I didn't want to do big events because then my, um, my character and my personality uh, is useless because uh, when there is too many people, you cannot really 
uh, talk to anybody, and for example, in a in a wedding, uh, the star are the people who are getting married, not uh, the metody or or the or the cook or, or whoever. So no, I I think I've been very lucky uh, to have clear what I wanted to do uh, since a early age, and uh, I followed that path. Uh, along the years, and uh, I touch wood. Uh, so far, uh, it's been good. It's been good. Well, but I have to point out that you, by your very nature, are warm. Um, you exude charm. I mean, you're charming. I mean, if if you were really unattractive and nasty, you couldn't be in this field, could you? Well, uh, thank you. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know, to be honest. It's not uh, uh, something I've been asking myself, but I really think that uh, the personality is something above uh, the aspect, obviously. Uh, nowadays, uh, everything starts by the sight. And uh, if you like what you see, uh, it's easier to, uh, to make contact. But uh, I really think that if you've got... Uh, uh, open and smiley uh, personality is very difficult not to uh, to be loved by people. So that helps that I've got uh, the blue eyes, I guess. <laughs> but uh, I I just love people. I've got uh, an easy smile, and uh, I guess that makes me a little bit more attractive uh, in uh, in the customer service. Well, we love you, and it was so fortuitous for us to run into you at this conference, and thank you for talking to us again, and I'm sure we'll keep running into each other throughout our lives. <laughs> well, thank you uh, to you for your passion for cooking, for having me here uh, at that moment, and uh, the world of gastronomy is tiny, <laughs> so we run into each other certainly another time. Thank you very much. We, we promised you a story uh, to, to, to close out the program, and it's apropos of uh, Signor Didier, who said, Monsieur. I remember where we went the, the year after they were best chef in the best restaurant in the world. I remember uh, the year. It's been a long time ago. And not, 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 not only that, he said, I also served you at Kike de Costa's restaurant <laughs> in, in Denia in Spain. Uh, he, he, he's, he's a man who really knows his craft. Yeah, I should say. Okay, so they so there you have it. An- another program in the bag. Yes. And uh, more 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 fun next week when we'll we'll, we'll still be in Ireland, I think. Yes. Although you, I guess you can never tell. Anyway, it's been a delight, as always, to communicate with you. We hope you'll join us again, same time, same place, next week. And until then, bye-bye.